Good morning, everyone. And thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us in worship. Thank you for reminding us that we made for God's presence. We find our joy in recognizing who He is. And in recognizing who He is, we discover who He has made us to be. So it's great to be together. And uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us. Before I start, just a heads up. Cindy and I will be on leave this coming week. So now's a really good time to have any pastoral problems, that kind of thing, because then you get to see Bevan. So uh, in the next seven days, if, uh, if you do need anything, Cindy and I will be away, uh, but the, the rest of the team are all around. I also want to remind you uh, to just keep on thinking about how we can use, especially our homes, lockdown level two, and maybe particularly on a Sunday, to visit with one another, to maybe share the services together, or to pick up our life groups and follow through on the theme inside of the service, to pray together, to stop for the one, to speak life, um, and to explore some of the, just the ministry and community and mission that we do together. So today our reading comes from um, the Apostle John and his first letter, and, um, and like his record of Jesus' life in his gospel, the first few verses recap the intro. This is 1 John chapter 1, but there's a, there's a recap of John chapter 1. And we're going to look at these this morning. As we come to the intro, um, we're going to discover in John's book that he explicitly gives us three reasons for writing this letter. He says, I write this so that your joy may be complete or full. I write this so that you do not sin. Um, and I write this so that you can know that you have eternal life. And, and he is looking for what just about every pastor, decent pastor in Christian ministry, should want for his people to lay as foundations. And those are joy, holiness, and assurance. But there's some subtleties in this that we will unpack. He's also writing because there are deceivers. There are people who are distorting uh, the message of Jesus, and they're actually seducing the church, trying to entice people away from the pure gospel of Jesus and therefore from Jesus himself. And, and so in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about the many false prophets. In chapter 2, verse 7, he talks about deceivers. He even talks about antichrist, people deliberately and spirits partnering with those people or people partnering with spirits who, who really have an anti-Jesus Christ mission. It appears that some of this teaching was an early form of what uh, has become known as Gnosticism, which held essentially that matter, stuff, the world, our bodies, etc., is evil but that you have this invisible spirit that is good. Now, that's a half-truth. Um, this Gnosticism was dualistic in that it believed there was an eternal conflict, not just conflict, but an eternal conflict between good and evil, two equal and opposite forces that waged constant war against each other from before time. Now, the biblical idea is that evil is not eternal. and So there's a fundamental break there, really important one. Um, and, and in some ways, we've just got to recognize there was a time when evil was not. And there is a time coming when evil will not be. Really important. 
Um, and so as we look at this Gnosticism, it, it taught that the good evil spirit didn't create, I mean, sorry, the good evil, the, the good spirit, eternal spirit, didn't create anything material. Um, and so the material world is essentially bad. It's a prison from which we must escape. We must get away. Whereas the Hebrew thought and the biblical worldview is that this world is a wonderful place and that God wants to redeem all things inside this world that he made. And it's certainly not a place we're trying to escape. We're going to unpack some of the significance even today as we look at this. Um, and the last thing was is that you needed some kind of secret knowledge hidden from everybody else or gnosis, where to get the word knowledge, um, and, and you needed some kind of special initiations to get into uh, this knowledge. A guy at that time, a popular um, Gnostic teacher, was a guy called Serenthus, who denied that Jesus was God's eternal son born in the flesh, but uh, that the Christ spirit descended on, in, on him at his baptism, that he somehow was translated from just being an everyday human being to something phenomenal, um, but that spirit left him just before his death. Again, half-truth. Um, and uh, so we're going to look at some of that. Let's jump right in. Now, it's this kind of teaching that John is responding to. And he, remember, is going to give us these three marks of believing in Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh, obedience to his commands, and loving one another. If you think of our, our baptismal covenant and promises that we make, all those things are included in there. And so the test is theological. The test of true faith is moral. Does it produce genuine righteousness and goodness? Our holiness gets examined by this letter. And our test is social. And we'll see some of that later this morning. Um, and so what we believe, how we live and love, how we relate to one another, they integral parts of one faith of, in Jesus Christ and the new life that that faith brings. And uh, they provide the substance of any test of our claim to be really following him. Now, even as we look and we realize, oh, there's all this error around. There's all this challenge. There's all this stuff that's coming against it. The tone is, of this letter is not negative. It's, it's full of joy. It's, there's no doom and gloom here. It's very honest. And yet it's such a warm letter, such an intimate, loving letter. And he's writing probably an older guy, and, uh, and so he's writing to dear children, and it's filled with confidence and certainty, certainty about Jesus, certainty about what Jesus has done for us, and certainty about the life that Jesus brings. So let's jump in. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. He writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, beheld, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you 
might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Some of the um, older manuscripts, it's probably the right way to say it. We write this to make our joy complete. But there are many manuscripts which there's a subtle difference to make your joy complete. I think it's in a sense both, and we'll unpack that a little bit later. So the first thing we see is that this message has an eternal dimension. It says, that which was from the beginning. We proclaim to you the eternal life. There's just unmistakably something transcendent, timeless, eternal. And in echoes of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And in echoes, um, double echoes of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we start by being able to look back to the beginning. Now, is this a question of whether John is looking back to the beginning of his encounter with Jesus? Well, he realizes that an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with eternity. And, and so he uses this language to describe the person of Jesus as the eternal life. So John does not say, interesting, he who was from the beginning, but rather he uses the impersonal form, the neuter, as if he's talking about something and not someone. And he deliberately maintains this ambiguity throughout the first three verses. There's a play on the words, uh, the, the form is poetic, and we're almost meant to be guessing. In poetry, it's not supposed to be like nailed down. And so the question we end up asking ourselves when we play with the words like this is, are we just talking about the message that comes to us through Jesus, or are we talking about Jesus as the very message? And John's play on words means the answer is yes. It means the answer is and. We're talking about the message of Jesus, but we're talking about Jesus, the message. And, and, and that ambiguity is deliberate. And so he says, I'm writing to you about the word of life. And he's using this ambiguous terminology. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest communication from all eternity, from God himself. God wants to be known, and so he speaks to us through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 begins this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, our forefathers, through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Very similar to John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1. And then he says this, verse 3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, you couldn't get a closer understanding or glimpse into who God is. And it's, and it's not just an approximation. It is utterly and completely exact. If you want to know God, look at Jesus, look at the Son, who is sustaining all things by his powerful word. So not only was he used to create all things by his word, but he sustains all things. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Paul says about this 
is Jesus the message or is it the message of Jesus? He says, well, we preach Christ. (laughs) They've come together. The person and the message have merged. And this becomes so important for us at a very personal level. We've got to hold the message. We don't have a message apart from Jesus. But we don't have Jesus apart from that which has been communicated to us by those who saw him, those who touched him, those who heard him. We are bound to their testimony. And so we should never separate or divide these things. So the beginning of Jesus is all eternity past. Indeed, although we say about evil, there was a time when it was not. We must say about Jesus, there was never a time when he was not. He's always, from all eternity, been there. But of course, there is a beginning for the disciples. And there's a beginning for you and me. And the beginning is when we get to hear the message. When we get to perceive or behold or discern or understand something of who God is. And so the Bible plays with time. And and today might be a beginning for someone who's listening and watching right now. And you've never thought of Jesus as someone who's provided purifications for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. You've never let your mind wrestle with the fact that, that of, of what he claims to be. You may have admired him. You may have even admired some of his followers. But, but to recognize this admiration is, is not sufficient in what God is calling you to. And today might be your beginning. Today might be the day in which you're confronted with what you believe. And that takes us to our second point. You see, the message has this eternal dimension, but it has a very strong historical dimension. It moves into time. It moves into time the day Jesus was conceived of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And this message moves into time every time God is at work. And this message moves into time, even as I'm proclaiming it right now. And so this message has a clear historical engagement. Now, it's not just because it's words. Understand this. Our message is not just ideas or even visions that come from heaven, as in many of the cults, all like downloaded as an instant book. Uh, some views of how the Quran came about, for example. But, but the message is most fundamentally this. This is what John's emphasizing in the way he constructs this. The message is around a person of Jesus who lived and died and rose again within the confines of history. There is a deep rootedness of the story in history, it's not just ideas, which means that you can test this. You must look at it. You must ask yourself if this is real. So often we think of religion as in a different truth category. Uh, There's an element in which we recognize our reason is not big enough. But it's not because this is irrational, but because reason is not big enough. And history provides you with reasons to think about who is this man that they heard? Who is this man that they saw? Who is this man that they touched? And who is this man that they came to believe was 
eternal from all time past and was the Son of God and was God the Son. You see, this is what John's insisting in the second part of verse 1. And, and the perfect tense has this sense that the consequence of the action remains. And so we heard him and his words stay with us. It wasn't just we heard him in the past, now it's done. No, no, no. His words have started something that continue. And we have seen with our eyes and we continue to see this new reality, this new way of seeing things. And we have looked and beheld and those insights and that discernment uh, stay, stay with us. And even the sense of touch, even the sense of touch is, is put in the Greek in such a way that that lasting sense of being connected to God. So in Echoes of John 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's something so deeply historical, real, actual about the life of Jesus. It's not just a good idea. And he's certainly not an invention we get to play with. He is a real historical figure we wrestle with. John claiming that together with the other disciples, um, that they are nothing less than an actual eyewitness of a historical flesh and blood person, but that this person is the eternal life. And so you have eternity and history merged into one. And the question is, what is your response going to be? See, the danger is we listen and do nothing. That would be unthinkable for the Apostle John. Is listen and believe, listen and follow Listen and step into something. You see, Jesus is given the title in the text of eternal life. He, this is the eternal life. Literally, uh, um, a, a literal way of translating that Greek phrase would be the life of eternity. Now, theologian Tom Wright points out, it's a mistake to think of eternal life as only the life that follows this life or even the life that preceded it. The eternal life is isn't only to be understood as going to heaven when we die. It includes that. But in these verses, it is a title for Jesus. And Tom Wright does a very technical study to show us that this phrase, the eternal life and its power inside John's mind, is very similar to what we find in the other Gospels when we talk about the kingdom of God. And instead of talking about the eternal life, which makes us think about heaven afterwards, we should talk about the life of eternity. The life of the eternal ages. In other words, there's an age to come that becomes accessible to us now. And that's exactly what the kingdom of God is. There's a rule and reign that's in our future that through Jesus, by faith, begins to enter our world right now. So It's not only our future that's in mind when he talks of eternal life, but that our future in God has the power to shape the present that the kingdom of heaven can come on earth even today as we've learned to pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Our eternal future breaks into our lives now. The kingdom of heaven in several partial but very important ways is coming on earth. Yes, its fullness is definitely waiting. Jesus is going to split the skies and the world will be made new. But we don't wait, uh, don't put off everything until then. Why? Because we have eternal life. We have the kingdom of heaven breaking in even now. We have the life of the eternal ages. And so the other thing that's in this passage, point number three, is our message has a transferable dimension. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So for John, as he's thinking of his faith, he's thinking of Jesus, what he has seen and heard, this man who has loved him and he has learned to love in return, who totally changed the direction of his life. But he says, you know, I shared in fellowship with Jesus. And we know that John would actually put his head on the breast or the chest of Jesus and just lie there. <laughs> Jesus would be chatting to others. And John just loved Jesus. But more than that, he calls himself the disciple loved by Jesus. I am the beloved. I, I, <laughs> I am the disciple Jesus loves. Now did Jesus loved John more? No, I don't think so. God loves the world. But John had positioned his life and had reshaped his identity according to the love that Jesus gave him. So he sees himself now, not just as a disciple, but as a disciple Jesus loves. And it shifted his life. And he's got this fellowship. He's got this communion. He's got this connection with the Son. But he realizes through this connection that by the Spirit, he has a connection with the Father. And now through this message, he's saying, join me in experiencing this love. And so, without diminishing or spiritualizing the historical significance in any way, John expects us, those who read this, to join in the fellowship of those who can see, those who can hear, and those who can touch. To join in the fellowship of those who share in the love and in the life of the Father and the Son. This is massive. The, the, the logic is this. Their historical experience of walking with Jesus has made it possible for any person who believes to enter into a community that fellowships with God. You need that again? Well, even if you don't, I'm going to give it to you. Their historical experience, this is so important, their historical experience of walking with Jesus has made it possible for any person who believes to enter into a community, the community that fellowships with God. The message makes their experience transferable if you will believe it. Now, I first preached this text about 25 years ago. And when I spoke about the transferable, I said, the message makes it possible for us to have a personal relationship with God. Now, of course it does. But I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that because that's not what the text says. Having a personal relationship with God, of course, is meaningful because you're part of a community that is in fellowship with God. So it's not that it isn't true, but I shouldn't have said it because the text doesn't say, well, if you're going to believe me, you can start a personal relationship with God. The passage says this, and man, am, am I grateful to be a pastor in Africa, trying to get rid of this whole individualism, this mindset that determines everything around my own personal experience and my ideas. You see, the passage clearly climaxes not in a personal relationship with God. It assumes a personal relationship with God means that you join a community of faith that fellowships with the Father and the Son and one another. 
I think we've missed the mark. Of course, a person, joining that fellowship requires personal responsibility, repentance, faith. But it takes me into community. It takes me into connection. It takes me beyond myself. You know, during this time of coronavirus, you're just meant to be missing one another. We are. We, we're meant to be missing connection, relationship, fellowship. Why? Because we join a community that fellowships with God. My application in this sense is, so let's pick up the phone. Let's accept the invitations. Let's make that connection and fellowship real. So for example, for Cindy and I, this afternoon, meaning Sunday, we're joining a couple of families at someone else's home. For several weeks each Sunday now, we've been allowed, and if I admit it, even before we were allowed, we, we had some single folk come to us and join us for the service, join us for a meal. Um, and being a pastor as an essential worker, kind of I was stretching my luck, but we just knew that people needed this connection, the catch-up, the fellowship. So this afternoon, we're going to be just sitting with people, catching up, connecting. And I think one of the problems we face, and this just comes from chatting to the other leaders, chatting to people in the church, um, when we talk about coming into this fellowship, and listen, this fellowship isn't some airy-fairy idea, ethereal thing. It's actual connection. We meant to have an experiential connection with God. Because of history, we, and because of eternity, because of history, it is transferable into today and into experience. We're struggling with this, and there seems to be a little bit of inertia. In other words, we're struggling to get going again. Now, I understand we don't want to rush back in, and we don't want to be unwise. But at the same time, we've got to check, why am I battling to like, start rolling again? Why am I battling to re-engage? Now, some of that might be that we were just genuinely too busy beforehand, and answering the question well is really important. A couple of weeks ago in the sermon, I spoke about getting stuck in the mud, talking about stepping into community and connection again. And, and some of us just really do need someone to reach us because the inertia means that we're feeling stuck. Inertia means that we've reached a point in the game where until someone reaches us. <laughs> now, in one sense, that's not true. The metaphor needs to change slightly because you don't have to wait for someone to reach you. You can reach someone else. But we will be stuck until we make connection. And so our fellowship, this, this connection, this community that John is writing about is going to help us overcome the inertia we're feeling. Even the spiritual inertia, even the lack of Engagement with God is going to be helped as we engage with one another. I love the end line. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, I said that there's some of the old text that said to make your joy complete. And, and that is true. Um, people who accept this message find 
themselves receiving love, joy, peace, and, and joy comes. And Jesus says, I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete or your joy may be full, John 15. But John says, I'm, I'm writing this to make our joy complete. Those who already have fellowship. You see, it's the joy of telling others. It's the joy of thinking of others. It's the joy of sharing this message with others that actually completes the circle of satisfaction. Up until that moment, the joy is not complete. Yes, there is joy, but there's a, there's a, there's a completion. There's a fullness when I stop thinking about just me and my walk with God and I enter into that place where out of my connection to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I'm actually thinking primarily about how I can make others step into this. And John recognizes that the completeness of his joy is not there while he only thinks about himself and God, or even about himself and other Christians. He's thinking about the world that needs to hear this message. We write this to make our joy complete. We put this message about the eternal life out there so that my circle of satisfaction may be full and complete. You see, it's in lovingly and contagiously sharing faith, inviting others into fellowship with ourselves and with God that our joy comes full circle. So my faith moves beyond itself. You see, if I'm looking for joy without looking to the welfare of others, I will always find my joy short circuits. It doesn't complete the circle. My joy becomes complete when having encountered the Jesus of eternity and history, his life is made transferable to me and I want to give it away to others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus of all eternity. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's the start. He's the finish. He is the all in all. Thank you that he introduces us, makes known the Father. And thank you that through his life, we are initiated into Holy Spirit reality. But Lord, we're also connected to one another. We want to pray, Lord, that out of that connection, a world might discover what it is that Jesus has done for them. Maybe you want to think about those things. Jesus who's bigger than time. Just think about that. He's bigger than your moment. He just transcends it all. And yet Jesus stepping into time. And I said earlier, for some of you today, this might be a beginning. Well, right now, you lean into Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. You tell him you're trusting in him. You're not trusting in your own goodness. You're trusting in what he did for you. He provided purification for your sins on the cross. And today is a day for you to trust him. 
step into fellowship. And if that's you, then step into community. Real, actual friends and people who are going to walk the road with you. And if that's you, then who are the people we're going to share this with? How are we going to make the circle of joy complete? So, Father, we give ourselves to you. Thank you that your word is alive. It feeds us. Amen.